yesterday uh, with a group of the boys that are involved in an organization here called Wilderness Corps. And we were along with some of the boys from this church and doing some orienteering exercises. If you don't know what orienteering is, it just simply means using topographical maps and compasses in order to navigate your woods self in the woods where you might otherwise get lost. Well, one of the dads um, set up this orienteering course over. We hiked into Morgan Monroe, and he was actually very good. And so regardless of topographical maps and compasses, we still found ourselves lost. Or at least, as Daniel Boone says, I've never been lost, but I've been bewildered once for three days. Well, we were significantly bewildered, that's for sure. But one of the things we talked about when we got done is is we got down into some of these ravines that we did get kind of disoriented. We stopped, we were talking so much, we forgot to count our paces, which is an important part. You want to keep track of how many steps you're taking so you know you don't overshoot. We overshot. And then we were trying to get ourselves back. Hey, you know what we need to have? We need to have a place that we know exactly where we are. That's what we've got to find. A big a big ravine, a pond, you know, something, some natural characteristic that we can identify in the map and we can say, now we know where we are. Well, there's parts of that that many people resonated with this. I myself for sure thought there is no way that's the way. Or this is the way we have to go because it I'm usually pretty good at knowing my directions. I'm pretty sure this is the way we have to go. But the reality is my perceptions were wrong. My internal compass got backwards and I absolutely needed a map with a compass that always points north. I needed to have a bearing that would say, here's where you are, here's where you need to go. So in the book of Romans, that's exactly what Paul does for not only the Roman church, but also for all believers of all times. Paul wants to develop an immovable map and compass so believers might always be able to find their way. So Paul wastes no time getting to the major theme, the true north of his gospel of his letter. It's the gospel of God. So this is going to be the first of our five sections in which we're going to organize Paul's greeting. And this is where he starts right in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So this is our first section. The gospel of God is God's good news. And this opening, seven verses, is kind of characteristic of Paul. It's a long, run-on sentence that spans seven verses. If you notice, there's no period for seven verses. He's trying to cram a lot into a little bit of space. He really wants to set out and say, I really want you to understand the book. And I'm going to give you an overview or a synopsis of this entire book in just a few sentences. And I'm sure 
that got a little longer than maybe he thought, but regardless, we have the word of God. But what he does here is he offers a crystal clear definition of the gospel. What does the gospel mean? When we say gospel, we use that word around here a lot. What do we mean when we say that? What does it mean to pursue the gospel or be changed by the gospel or accept the gospel? So here's a definition, a working definition for us that is really a kind of a summary of what Paul is saying in these verses. The gospel is God's good news promised in the Old Testament, centered on Jesus, designed to bring all people to the obedience of faith for the sake of of Christ's name, transforming everyone who believes. Church, I'm going to argue with you or for us that if you have no growth and change, then you don't understand the gospel. Because the entire purpose of the gospel is life change. Now that might be minimal at first. We might be doing this, right, as we experience. But there will be growth and change. Because that's what the work of the gospel does. And so right here in these first seven verses, Paul provides a gospel-saturated greeting that eventually leads us right to his thesis statement in verses 16 through 17, but we're going to get to that next week. But he says this. This is where he's going. This is what kind of summarizes the entire book. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if Paul's major theme of the entire book of Romans is the gospel, then there's two key words that he regularly uses to kind of build this theme out. And those two words are the name God and then also the word righteousness. So if you were with us during our growth group study last season, uh, teacher Ray Vanderlaan told us that this phrase, the good news or the gospel, was used a lot in the Roman Empire. Caesar was regularly heralding that he was bringing the Roman Empire good news or the gospel. What Paul is doing is he's actually capitalizing on this term. He's using this term that would have been very familiar. But he's saying Rome, Roman leadership is promising good news. They don't have good news. Good news belongs to God alone. The good news is not Caesar's news. The good news is not man's news. The good news is brought to you by God alone. And the good news, Paul says, is that we can possess the righteousness of God. That's the good news. I want us to let that sink in a little bit. Because often for us, 
We hear it this way, and we're going to talk about this more later. The good news is that you can go to heaven. True? This is the gospel that we have grown up with in America. The good news is about your benefit. But I'm telling you that Paul is arguing here, and if we're careful to look throughout the rest of his epistles in the New Testament, the good news is, here's the great news for us. We can obtain and possess the righteousness of God. That's the good news. And that's because it's aimed at something bigger than us. We're going to head there. But in order to get at these key components, the theme of the gospel, meaning good news, and then also this term righteousness that comes from God, Paul is constantly referring to the name of the Lord, to God. One commentary says it this way, God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. And so with God as the high central character of his entire letter, Paul seeks throughout the book to answer logical and sequential series of questions and then provide answers to the questions that he raises. So it kind of goes like this. I'm going to kind of give you a summary of some of these subject compliments, if you will, these presuppositional thoughts and then answers to these questions. And so Paul is going to begin by asking, how are men and women able to live in relationship with the God of righteousness? And so for the first three chapters, he's going to lay out this fact that there is none righteous, no, not one, that we're all broken and sinful and we absolutely need redemption. And he's asking this question, how do unrighteous men and women live in relationship with the righteous God? And his answer is, they must become righteous themselves. They absolutely have to be righteous in order to fellowship with righteousness. Well, then how do men and women become righteous? They become righteous through the gospel of God, the good news of God. Well, what's the good news of God? The good news is that God himself gives us his righteousness as it was clearly depicted and seen and lived out in Jesus, his son. And then you might have heard this phrase before. He imputes, which is just a, it's an old word, but it just means he gives us or attributes or assigns or credits the righteousness that doesn't belong to us, it's outside of us, but he accredits, he imputes that righteousness to us. It's a gift, like we read when we started. It's not something we've earned, it's something that is given to us. Well then, how do we get Jesus' righteousness attributed to our lives? By faith in what God has said. Well, what does it mean to have faith? It means to believe so heartily and thoroughly that your life begins and continually takes on the righteousness in which we place our faith. You with me? What does it mean to have faith? Oh, I believe. To say that simply? No. To have faith means to believe so heartily and thoroughly that the very righteousness in which I'm placing my faith begins to become mine. 
I begin to grow, not perfectly, but I head in the direction of the righteousness which apprehended me. You with me? And so, the aim of Paul's letter is to lay out logical, sequential, comprehensive presentation of this gospel of God as he introduces it. And again, he wants believers to have a map and a compass for every facet of life. So that if we're wondering, man, what does it look like to be like God here? Or, man, I'm so lost. I have no idea how to get back. He wants us to have a letter, a compass, a map, so we know how to get back. If we think we're ahead of ourselves and we're starting to feel pretty good and being a little bit self-righteous, he wants a compass to point us back to say, it's not about you. Your righteousness comes through Christ and Christ alone. He wants us to be able to orient our thinking and our life and our living in a way that will reflect God's righteous character. So this is the title of our series and the theme of Paul's book, Through the Gospel of God, this good news that centers around Jesus. He's calling us to the righteousness of God, His own. Which is interesting, especially for this book to be written by Paul. And so one of the things that happens as a result of this letter is our confidence in the gospel's power to be able to change us should increase when we consider who the author is. This is Paul. This is a guy who was so self-righteous and proud and was a moralist who was so blinded by his own self-promotion and ambition that he literally found himself warring against God and persecuting the people that God said belonged to him. This is not man's opinion. This is God's opinion. Paul, why are you warring against me? And so here's this man warring against God was in no way seeking the righteousness of God that comes from outside of him, but was pursuing hard line, right? His own ability to grasp a hold of righteousness. And then God rescues Paul from himself. The gospel of God radically reorients Paul's life. He got a brand new map and a spanking new compass. Jesus Christ loved Paul, humbled Paul, set him a, called him, set him apart for a specific and glorious work to do something for him. So as we open, it's interesting that we find Paul sharing the gospel's impact on his own life and introducing himself this way. Paul, a servant, translated slave, somebody owned by another. And think about this radical shift 
This is what I'm trying to help us understand, friends, right? This should give us hope in our ability to change ourselves. You with me? Paul was not owned by anybody. And here he introduces himself as a servant, a slave, owned by Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. You ought to, if you're following along in your Bible, circle those three things, or underline, servant, called, set apart. Paul's identity is a servant. He's an apostle, meaning a delegate, an ambassador, a messenger. And he's called by God and then set apart. Set apart to do what? To share the good news about God's redeeming love in both word and deed. To, and he says in verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith. In the lives of you who are also called. You see, do you see this, this gospel calling? What's he supposed to be doing? Going to heaven? That's part of it. His job is to help people obey in faith. We've been talking about this obedience unto action. Paul's saying the same thing. He's using a different phrase. The obedience of faith. This is his job. This is his set apart what he's set apart to do. And he's to do this, end of verse 5, for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. So this is this first part of Paul's lengthy introduction. The second part is this, the gospel was promised in the Old Testament and, Paul writes, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures. Now, remember, we've just come through Genesis chapters 1 through 12, and we kind of landed talking a lot about Abraham. And really what we're looking at here, and Paul is going to draw upon this as we get later into the book, is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That God is going to do a work for His people, draw them to Himself, and that through the Holy Spirit, He's going to empower his people in order to go out to become a blessing to all the nations. Remember when we studied this? That through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. And what Paul is saying here is, it's come. The fulfillment has come in Christ. Now we get to do our job. We get to bless the nations with the righteousness of God. And it's what I'm called to do to help you in the obedience of faith. So this is a 2,000 year ago covenant that was made and now they're realizing the reality of it come to full circle. So Paul references his promises in both the prophets and in the Holy Scriptures and we clearly understand that he's speaking of divine inspiration. And so God spoke through the prophets and it ended up in a book. God moved in the lives of his patriots and it ended up in a book. God speaks 
And so we have a book that is holy. We see this so often, right? We hear it so much, guys. Let, let's not lose it, right? Holy Bible. The Bible is holy. The holy scriptures. What does that mean? It is a book completely set apart. It is unique. It's different than any other book. It's holy. It's sanctified. It's completely other than. You don't have a book in your library like this book. There is no book in any library of Congress, for sure, like this book. Solomon says there is no book in any part of the world like this book. Why? Because it is the very words of God that have been preserved for our faith, handed down specifically and very um, intentionally protected so that we wouldn't be lost, church. This is our go-to truth source. It's our map. And church, when I was reading this, one author was saying, this should cause us to love the Bible, which I agree, but it ought to first cause us to love the God of the Bible first. Right? Lord, how good is it of you not to leave us alone without a compass? How kind is it of you that you would preserve this for us and we in faith can apprehend your um, mind? This should cause us to love the God of the Bible, but it should also cause us to love his words that he has preserved for us. And at the center of his word, this takes us into the third section of Paul's intro. At the center of God's word is this reality that the gospel of God centers on Jesus. The whole Bible, from beginning to end, is about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so... Although I was kind of really tempted at first to say, well, this is just kind of an introduction. The more, this is way more than an introduction. It's a summary in the heart of Paul. It's his story. I'm a set apart one. I'm a servant. I'm a slave. This is the gospel that has saved us. It's far more than a greeting. Immediately, Paul is establishing Christ as king over Caesar. Think about how bold this is. Caesar is going around claiming to be deified, to be God. Paul sends a letter ahead of time and then shows up and says, Caesar is not God, God is God. He's establishing Christ as king over Caesar right in the beginning of this letter. And he does so by establishing his credentials both earthly of the flesh and spiritual. So the end of verse 1, he's an apostle. He set aside for the gospel of God. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 
So Paul establishes Jesus' credentials, both earthly and spiritual. And then his meritorious claim to the throne by this powerful resurrection. So Paul tells us he was descended from David in the flesh. David recognized that his offspring would be his Lord, his Adonai, his master, his messianic king. So Psalms 110.1, David says, the Lord says to my Lord. What's happening here is that David is recognizing whoever this offspring is that's coming through me, he will be my Lord, my Adonai. He will be my God. That's what David is saying. And so Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22. And in his discussion, he restates this verse. This is in Matthew 22 verse 44. Without going into all of it, this is his reasoning. He says to the Pharisees, the son of David is your title for the Messiah. True? The Pharisees would say, yes, that's the title We use, and he says, but David calls him Lord. So then the Messiah must be much more than a physical son. He must be much more than a descendant. He must be a God king. He must be a divine king. And so he's pushing the Pharisees to recognize the reality. We're not talking about an earthly kingdom here. We're talking about a spiritual one. And in order to establish a spiritual kingdom, and David recognized this by the power of the Holy Spirit in him and prophesied, and you guys are missing the point. And this spiritual deified king is standing before you. That's his point. And so David, a fleshly king... This is what Paul is saying. Declared Jesus the ultimate king. But Paul also tells us that he was declared to be son of God according to the spirit. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 and 17. Matthew records this. John also does in his gospel. And when Jesus was baptized immediately he went up from the water. And behold the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Paul says he was declared king by the flesh, and then he was also declared Messiah king by the Spirit. And then again, this was powerfully declared by his resurrection And the reality that he is seated at God's right hand in the throne room. Jesus is the king. And the entire gospel centers on him. The entire Bible centers about him. The whole Old Testament leads up to this reality. We're looking for this messianic king. And Paul is saying, Christ has been here. He is the one. And so... As we combine what we're now studying with what we've learned about the Abrahamic covenant, we get into our fourth point, and it's this. The gospel of God is designed to bring all people to the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name. The goal of the gospel is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant where God is exalted, he's held up high, and all the nations are blessed through the reality of this messianic king. And so 
the purpose, the entire aim of Paul's ministry, his apostleship, even more so this book and this gospel, is the nation's joyful obedience to King Jesus, which flows out of their faith. It's not just obedience. It's obedience that says, you're my king, and you're the righteous one, and because of that, I'm going to organize my life around you. Faith that produces obedience. That's the entire purpose of all of the gospel of God. Now, I said we were going to talk about this. Let me say this. And I'm, I'm going to kind of say this strongly, okay? And kind of really bluntly, because I think we really need to hear it. I'm not, remember, I'm not up here telling you, okay, this is true for me too. But most of the gospel presentations that we grew up with fall woefully short. If I'm communicating appropriately and really trying to help us understand what the whole purpose of the gospel is, for most of us, this hearing or sharing the gospel ends with us getting to heaven. True? Which is partly true. But I'm going to argue that that kind of misrepresentation is causing us a lot of problems because what we have is a bunch of Christians sitting around on their hands waiting to get to heaven pondering pandering over these small first world problems and acting like spoiled children you with me I told you I was going to tell you straight right and I also told you I'm included in this we have made the gospel about getting ourselves to heaven and our own comfort. And church, if we look at the American church, true, we are reaping the benefits of this because now when it doesn't go our way, we've got a bunch of people jumping ship. The argument that Paul makes here and throughout the rest of his letter is that we are called to faith-filled obedience that makes the name of Jesus great and tells the nations about him. It is far greater than our comfort and our own security. You with me? It includes some of that. But we're selling ourselves short, and as C.S. Lewis kind of states it, we have become content with making mud pies and mud puddles while this glorious reality of the entire ocean awaits us. We've missed the reality of the gloriousness of the gospel. And as a result of that, our, the American church, and you, many of you know my wife and family were just in Peru, the South American church is largely dominated by women. Why is this? Because there's not a mission grand enough to call leaders to the church. So I'm just telling you this watering down the gospel and us making it so small about us is having major ramifications. And not just that, but this is true. Some of us need to grasp a hold of this glorious reality of making our lives so much about Christ that our addictions go away. Some of us need to grasp a hold of the reality 
that this life is so much about Christ that our character flaws start to disappear. Some of us need to make such a glorious reality about this calling to something so much bigger than us and we stop pandering over our petty problems that our marriage problems go away. You with me? We are sitting around with first world problems coddling ourselves and there's a glorious gospel to be going towards. Again, this is the fulfillment of this covenant. How will all nations be blessed? Through Abraham's descendants. Who are Abraham's descendants? They're not just the circumcised Jews, but those who are circumcised in heart and are are children of Abraham by what? Faith. Romans chapter 2. We're going to be getting to that in a couple of weeks. This fulfillment of God's name being made great and fantastic is going to come through who? For those who are Abraham's children by faith. Church, that's us. We have been called to God for the sake of His name among the nations. I'm telling you, get this in your mind and start flipping through the New Testament. You'll go, oh my gosh, put these lenses on that this whole gospel thing is about making Christ's name great, not just us getting to heaven, and flip through the Bible with those lenses and your understanding of the gospel is going to increase profoundly, significantly. We are rescued and called and set apart just like Paul. Not for our comfort and security, but for the fame of the name of the righteous one who deserves our full attention. Yes? It's true. And therefore, this fifth and last point, the gospel of God transforms everyone who believes. And so having given this broad overview, this kind of condensed gospel summary in his introduction, Paul tells the Romans and therefore us by application how we fit into this gospel plan. In a sense, we are those among the nations who are part of God's redemptive plan. Look at verse 6. Including you, This includes you. All this glorious stuff that Paul's been talking about, this stuff that he's been exemplifying, this reality of this earth-shattering compass shift in his own life, God being in Christ Jesus as this messianic king, and everything is about him, all attention points to him, and this includes you. Including you, Who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And one of the cool things, the way this happens. So last week we did this whole thing about the calling of God. Remember this? Hopefully you do, if you're here. And we talked about Abraham being called and responding to called. And then all of a sudden I'm getting into this passage not realizing that Romans does the same exact thing. And in eight verses Paul says three times, you've been called by the Lord.
So last week we said the life of a Christian is a life of hearing and responding to the call of God. It's not just once. We do hear it the first time, right? And he calls us off of our piles of sand to firm foundations in his righteousness. He calls us away from the things that harm us to the things where we can, to the thing where we find security and it's only in him. So like Paul, we are called to belong. And as we get into the first three chapters, considering, considering our bent and our propensity towards rebellion and warring against God and our, and our propensity to actually suppress truth and hold it down, because we want to go our own way, considering those things in our hearts that want to stray. Isaiah prophesied this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Considering all those things, it is a complete privilege that we are loved and called by God. True? Men who were in the men's study workshop last, remember when we talked about this, what a privilege it is to be called sons of God? I really, we're so familiar with this church. I want to just challenge you to this next few days and with your families and friends or coworkers, whoever you're with, just talk about this reality. Can you imagine we're called by God to belong to him? This is a privilege. Tim Keller says we need to meditate until our hearts get hot. We need to meditate on this reality of being called by the living God to belong to him. And then verse 7 tells us why we're called, including you who are called to belong to Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Hey friends, my church family, you are loved by God. That's why He has called you to belong to Him. Can you imagine And when he chooses us, we are called to be saints. What does that mean? Saints means to be physically and morally blameless, to be ceremonial, ceremonially set apart. What are we called to do? The obedience of faith for the sake of the glorious name of Christ being made manifest to all the nations. That's what we're called to. That's right now. That changes the way we wait for heaven. Yeah? Active participants and doing whatever we can to bring the kingdom of God on earth today while we wait for its full manifestation. Right? This application is very similar to last week. I want to kind of start with the end. This reality that we are loved by God. Last week we said, when God says to Abraham, Behold, because you have not withheld your one and only son, I will bless you. Not only was he speaking to Abraham, he was also by example 
reminding us how we would respond to a God who has given his one and only son for us. And so we then in turn say back to the Lord, because you have not withhold your one and only son, I will bless you. In other words, I will kneel before you. I will give you my life. I will give you my attention. I will worship you. And so church, our attention and our our application starts there. Lord, you have been so good and kind to me. How could I do anything other and do it joyfully? So we start with the end. We are loved by God. Secondly, we are called to belong to him. We orient ourselves in obedience to him for the sake of his name among the nations. It's interesting, later in chapter 2, verse 24, Paul is kind of comparing against this, and he says, as it is, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's the exact opposite of the gospel intention. You're not living in light with the gospel, and so the Gentiles are not being blessed. They're, They're cursing God and wanting to go away from him. That's not our calling, church. But we are called to belong to Him and to joyfully obey in faith. And so, Father, we, we want Your help. We need Your help in this. We thank You, as Jesus promised, that we don't do this alone, that we have the Holy Spirit living in us and helping us, our internal compass, We have your word and we have the strength of the body here and the constant reminders of who we are and who we're called to be. And we want to ask for more of it and submit ourselves to it and give ourselves over to the true gospel, which has you at the center. And in this, we will understand what Jesus said in John 10 when he said, I have come that my my joy that is in the Father may be in you. And so, Father, as we more fully understand and live out of the reality of the gospel, would we also understand this joy that belongs only in abiding relationship with you. And again, we need your help through the Spirit, and we ask for it. In the name of Christ our King. Amen. So I'm going to have you um, stand with me. And just by way of, Jason led us in it as we got started, but by way of meditating on what we just thought about, I want to read this um, once again. And then after we do this, um, Nick is going to come up and lead us in communion. So please read with me together. Paul, a slave, a called messenger, set apart to share the good news of God. This good news of God is Jesus, who was promised by both the prophets in the scriptures. Promised Jesus was descended from King David in the flesh. Promised Jesus was declared God by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' God declaration was powerfully proven 
by his resurrection from the dead and his installment at God's right hand as the messianic king. Through King Jesus, the apostles have received a grace gift and apostleship authority to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. This includes you who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus Christ because you are loved by God and called to be saints, physically and morally blameless, ceremonial, set apart. Amen.